Hey everyone, uh, this is another Patreon episode preview. This one is where we had an interview with Nate Holdren, uh, the author of Injury Impoverished. And this is a nice little clip from it, but if you want the whole thing, go to patreon.com slash workstoppage and give us $5 a month. If you can't afford to do that, jump in the Discord and message one of the admins. We would be happy to hook you up with it. As usual, solidarity forever. The process of writing this was a whole lot of like looking closely at things that I had kind of looked away from or only glanced at before. And then upon looking closely being like, I, I need to take a shower. This is fucked up. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And I kind of wanted the book to convey that in a way that would be for a kind of liberal and middle class readers to be like, if you walk with me in this book, this will be an uncomfortable read because the society that you've been kind of bought into comes out looking pretty bad. And I think for folks who are already on the left and who are already kind of work-class backgrounds and so on, I think it's a little bit different read. And I'm not totally, you know, and I am who I am, so I'm not sure sure sort of how it hits for different audiences. But I really wanted to make it really clear to be like, this is the world we in fact live in. Like, I'm making these interpretive Mm -hmm. claims and there's a lot of Marx and there's some Foucault and Walter Benjamin. There's some, some high theory in here. But like, this is real stuff that really happens. And like what you were talking about, you know, with your dad and like, well, my mom, like these are real social processes. And, um, and that the kind of, you know, the depth of contempt that is in our society right. for so many members of that society, some of which is explicit, some of which is hidden, some of which is like people even hide from themselves and they don't realize they feel contempt for working class people. That was kind of, kind of where I wanted to, I think it comes out when you look closely at this kind of subject and at similar subjects. Well, especially that's why I think a lot of people have been uh, conditioned to gravitate gravitate towards like the personal responsibility narratives of like, oh, well, you know, obviously they just didn't take care of themselves and and to truly just ignore the systemic factors that are reproducing themselves constantly. I agree. And I also think like if you're like high enough up the hill, high enough up, if you're high enough up the hill that the flood hasn't gotten you yet, but you're not so high up the hill that you know the flood will never get to you. Those personal responsibility nerves are really narratives are really appealing because it's frightening, you know, to be right. Like, and like the pandemic has done this for a lot of us, you know, certainly for me of being like, you know what? I'm I'm lower down on the food chain than I thought. Like I could die and my kids will get 100 grand in life insurance. That's like that's a real possibility given my health and the state of the pandemic and so on. And so I think there's the kind of thing of being like. For people who are not yet seeing the floodwaters come, I think think some of those narratives are a comfort to be like oh well i can i can grind my way out of this i can hustle my way out of this i'm not at risk and um i sort of knew this intellectually that like that wasn't true and then i wrote the book and i kind of drove it home more viscerally and then i turned the book in december 2019 and so the pandemic broke out shortly afterward and then as the pandemic broke out i was just being like oh my god if anything like i felt like i was too mild um (laughs) yeah and, and the degree to which you know like Lots of people in my family have gotten COVID and have been it's been pretty serious. No no one I'm related to has died of COVID, thankfully. But a lot but some you know, one of my friends has and but so that sort of thing of being also very viscerally being like, whoa, like we are way more at risk than um in, in an immediate sense. You know, it was intellectual previously for me and then being like, Oh wow, like this is this is not a theoretical point. This is my friend Sebastian dying of COVID. Right. Yeah. And that level of like detachment for especially, I mean, detachment, maybe not even the right word, but for the folks in the, like the ruling class of the ruling class, you know, the big bourgeoisie and that sort of language, this idea of like that poor people do not feel their tragedies deeply. I mean, for me, like as somebody who reads a lot about 20th century U S history, imperialism, we 
done a bunch of episodes on that stuff, but like it was hard not to see parallels in the rhetoric that we use to dehumanize, you know, quote unquote, official enemies of the U.S. state. And to the point where it's like, oh, well, you know, when we talk about this as struggle as like a class war, that's not really a metaphor. That's like literal language, because one of the most important parts of the way that the U.S. and really any society mobilizes its citizenry for against a national enemy is that process of dehumanization. Like whenever we, you see any of the statements from people during like Vietnam, you hear constantly about, Oh, the, well, you know, the, the Asian mind does not value life the same way we in the way. It's just this, ex, just in crazy racist shit that like you would think that if you sat back for two seconds and thought about it, you'd be like, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Like the idea that this enormous group of people just don't have any value on life. But then we see that same sort of thing reproduced on that domestic scale when we, we see these class divisions and, and I know like it becomes sort of a meme where you have like, you know, like things like the, well, how much could a banana cost? $10, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing that is, is thrown out there as a joke. But like you have so many examples of this 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 rhetoric about the working class as disposable, like it, it, a horrible term for it. But I think they would have very much used it in the era as like this subhuman like group of people that really exist purely to reproduce the conditions under which the ruling class live. I totally agree. And if if members of the ruling class feel any kind of sympathies, they then have as Lena was saying, they have, then have these individualizing narratives of being like, Hey, like, right. That's a shame that that guy died. It's probably his fault. You know, like, cause mm-hmm. I don't want to feel bad about it. Um, yeah. The class war is less little metaphor. I think is that's been on my mind too, of being like, Oh, actually, cause it's easy from the left to be like, Oh yeah. Class war, meaning like banners and, and strikes and, you know, general right. strike, like a class war, meaning our class will begin to wage it. But it's actually be like, in a certain sense, class is warfare and it's mm-hmm. never stopped. It's just our side has been, you know, being like, why are you doing, you know, like, right. Well, it's the classic line that is said is they only call it class war when we fight back. Right. Totally. I couldn't put it better. Yeah. And one of the other things that I I found really, really interesting in your book, because there's so many parallels with this, with stuff that we talk about all the time with the development and history of the U.S. labor movement, is the way that you have a com like it, the way that you have like a combination of both good and bad aspects to like passing things like, like workers comp, like, you know, cause one of the things that you mentioned, and this is why I think that phrasing of the, the, the two tyrannies is so good because it helps keep you from thinking, Oh, well, no, this system, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's good. And so we need to defend it rather than just be like, we can acknowledge that there are some small improvements while still, saying that this is bad. And one of the things that I thought was so interesting about that rise of workers comp laws, well, uh, laws is that you then in parallel see the rise in hiring discrimination because now you have employers treating, looking for anybody with the so-called defects. Like uh, there was a quote that you had in here from the Pullman president, David Crawford, that, and it's funny because I think a lot of people would like say, oh, this is, well, this is, this sort of rhetoric is beyond the pale. You'd never hear this today. I'm like, well, I bet you would hear it from CEOs directly. This is, they just employ PR people so that they're not the ones talking about it. But the, the quote is, 
I am very strongly of the opinion that we should take all steps to prevent physical crooks from getting on the employment list, wrote Crawford, adding, there's just as good reason for not employing a man with a bad heart or bad arteries as there is for not taking on a new one-eyed man. And, like, that obviously led to one of the big fights for the unions in that era of fighting against these mandatory physical examinations. But it's it was just such an interesting look, I, th- I think, at, like, the ways that capitalism is capable of absorbing reforms and turning it all back on the working class. Uh, and I think that uh, we talked to, we talked about this a little bit and John mentioned that that hasn't gone away. I mean, he literally had a physical examination for his most recent job. Yep. So what, what happened? So is prior to workers comp, like I said, under the tyranny of trial, the tyranny of trial, most people just don't get compensated. And um, right. So if there's a, so the harms of injury are just sort of the workers problem and work was in, was even more dangerous than in the United States than it is now. Somebody suggested to me, by the way, um, that it may be the case that work actually never got safer. It just was re the dangers were reallocated geographically. I'm the limits of my own training as a U.S. historian. I can't I can't say either way, but that sounds plausible to me. But um, in the United States, work is was even more dangerous a hundred years ago, and um, in a context where um people in 120 years ago, in a context where people are not getting compensated the harms just fall on the people they fall in and so what happens is people who survive the labor force and survive the labor market you just accumulate you know you get banged up over time and so if you're like a machinist you may you may have seven fingers you're a railroad brakeman you have seven fingers and that just means you're a really good brakeman you've been around a lot but workers Mm -hmm. workers comp comes in and then there's a for a while the pattern in some states continues workers comp is state by state it's kind of varies a little bit by state there's some uniformity and there's some differences and the differences make a lot of difference in individual working class lives, but the institutional, institutional patterns are pretty much the same. But um, for a while, there's a thing of being like, if you're a, a one-eyed person and you lose your only eye, that's your problem. And so again, the harm lies where it falls. After a while, there's a shift toward a more egalitarian on paper thing of like, well, one-eyed person who loses their only eye will get the same amount of money as a two-eyed person who loses both of their eyes because you've lost all of your sight. So like mm. with, with eyes specifically... If you lose one eye, you have like 60 to 70% of your sight because that's the way binocular vision works. And if you have only one eye and you lose it, you lose all of your sight, obviously. And so if you have a glass bottle factory and a glass bottle explodes and two workers lose an eye, one of them is two-eyed, one of them is one-eyed, they've lost a quantity of body part, but they've lost a very different quantity of their capacity for sight. And so over time, the workers' complex shift toward, well, we'll compensate capacity for sight, which means it's a greater cost for employers. And really rapidly, employers are like, well, in that case, we're not hiring seven-fingered brain anymore because... Now there are costs for right. us. And so it's this really rapid inversion from, hey, this just means I've been around and I've survived labor force somewhere. I'm wearing my job experience on the, the you know, the um, on my buddy on the wear and tear, but that means I've, I've been around and I ought to do this work well. To employers really rapidly ratcheting up the standards. You know, and that's really awful because especially at the time, there's just not safety nets. And so a lot of people who are vulnerable lose their jobs. I don't think I, I think I probably could on this in the book. There's also a thing being like you lose one eye at work as a two eyed person. Your boss might keep you on for a while, but then the next next time HR does a review and is like, "Hey, hang on, why are we employing this one eyed guy?" You're probably not going to keep your job. So it's actually for even for people who are who are physically able, there's actually like a pretty big trapdoor that opens up. And I think I probably could have been clearer on that in the book in retrospect. But um, but I think this also gets back to we we're talking about a moment about the kind of the contempt of being like you're you're a resource, you're here for us because you're profitably laboring, and if you're not, you can just take a hike. And um, and in capitalism, that just means like you don't get. You don't get what you need to survive, let alone thrive. You know, if, you, if you're not if you're not useful for someone to make money off of, then um, live or die. That's kind of nobody's problem in a capitalist society, which I think is just 
America for us, like fundamentally barbaric. I spent my whole life making somebody rich. I busted my ass to that son of a bitch. And he left me to die like a dog in a ditch. And told me I'm all used up. He used up my labor, he used up my time. He plundered my body and squandered my mind. And gave me a pension of handouts and wine. And told me I'm all used up. My kids are in hock to a god you call work. Slaving their lives out for some other jerk. Yeah, my youngest in Frisco just made shipping clerk. And he don't know I'm all used up. The young people reaching for power and gold Don't have respect for anything old For pennies they're bought and for promises sold Someday they'll all be used up They use up the oil, they use up the trees They use up the air and they use up the sea Well how about you friend and how about me What's left when we're all used up I'll finish my life in this crummy hotel It's lousy with bugs and my God, what a smell But my plumbing still works and I'm clear as a bell Don't tell me I'm all used up Outside my window the world passes by Gives me a handout and spits in my eye And no one can tell me cause no one knows why I'm living but I'm all used up Sometimes in my dreams I sit by a tree My life is a book of how things used to be And kids gather around and they listen to me And they don't think I'm all used up And there's songs and there's laughter and things I can do And all that I've learned I can give back to you I'd give my last breath just to make it come true No, I'm not all used up they use up the oil and they use up the trees They use up the air and they use up the sea Well, how about you, friend, and how about me? What's left when we're all used up?